listening to Law and Gospel on this Monday, September the 23rd, in the year of our Lord, 2019. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and I'll tell you, 24 hours ago, I wasn't too sure I was going to be able to make it in. I had a little headache and stomach ache. In fact, we had to cancel out going on a meal with good friends of ours, but... By midnight, I was doing better, and uh, my wife was able to give me some fruit and yogurt, and I got back on track. So here I am on Monday morning as we take a look at lessons for the coming Pentecost Sunday. That is next Sunday. It's actually called St. Michael's because it talks about him as an angel defeating Satan. There are some interesting passages there. But today we're going to be taking a look at the gospel reading. There's actually two of them. Uh, This is the first one suggested, Matthew 17. I'm sorry, Matthew 18. And we're going to take a look at that because I had promised we were going to talk a little bit about what do we mean by law and gospel? I would dare say, when we're talking about the distinctions between law and gospel, I'm finding a lot of even Lutherans don't really understand it properly. Uh, they, They have a distinction between law and gospel, and often when I ask the question, they'll say, well, the law are the Ten Commandments, and the gospel is Jesus died on the cross. Now, I'm not going to object that law is commandments and gospel is about Jesus dying on the cross. But that's not what we mean when we're talking about the proper distinctions between law and gospel. We're not talking about their content, which would be Ten Commandments, ceremonial laws, etc., and the gospel being Uh, the news of what Jesus Christ did in becoming incarnate, suffering under Pontius Pilate. In other words, talking about the Apostles' Creed. What we're talking about is the application of law and gospel. That's quite something different. In other words, every sermon should apply the law. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's something in the text that accuses us of falling short of the glory of God. That is what is meant by law, preaching. The gospel preaching reverses or gives treatment to the problem we have under the law where we are comforted and therefore have nothing to fear from God, even though the law makes clear we have failed. So, a lot of times when Jesus uses law and gospel, it's because of the attitude on the part of the uh, disciples. In chapter 18, verse 1, it begins this way. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, in this case, the word disciple means more than just the 12 apostles. The disciples were following Jesus around a lot. In fact, if we remember after Judas died, the criteria used to choose another disciple 
Uh, number one was that he needed to know Jesus. And number two, he had kind of been in the crowd a lot of times with the apostles with Jesus. Uh, Matthias was chosen because he met those criteria. Well, a lot of times the disciples would ask, who's the greatest? Thinking that Jesus would say, they are. Remember, even the apostles said, we've left everything to follow you. Are we not the greatest? There, there was that one occasion when the mother of two of the disciples asked Jesus that one would sit on his left hand and one his right hand when he gets into the kingdom of heaven after judgment day. And he said, no, that's not for me to choose. That's for the father to choose. So it's kind of interesting that when you look at the question, you could first of all apply the law by saying, you think you're good enough to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, can you imagine that? You go up to the president of the United States and you say, we want to know from your opinion who is the greatest person in the United States. Well, any president worth his salt is going to say, I am not because he may be such a great person, but because he has such authority. President of the United States is the most powerful man in the world. Something can be happening even overseas, and he could take planes to bomb the area if necessary, and he can just do that on his command. So, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The answer is obvious. Jesus is. But even Jesus, he listens to the people, and now he calls to him a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I do not believe that by that Jesus is saying that these children are now in the kingdom of heaven just because they are children. No. Remember, he blesses them, he baptizes them, etc. He brings them into the kingdom of heaven in various ways. What he's doing, it, this is kind of a parable understood properly as an extended metaphor or simile. It's not necessarily a parable in the sense of this is what the kingdom of heaven is like in the sense of truly how children get in. What he's saying, notice when he says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that they're small? Does that mean that they're not knowledgeable? Scripture interprets Scripture. And so you need to look at the context to see what Jesus is saying about how one becomes like a little child in the kingdom of God. And here it is, verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that humility that Jesus is talking about is not necessarily spiritual humility on the part of a child. How is a child humbled? Well, if you've had children, 
at least up to a certain number of years or sometimes even months, they're really humble. That is, they listen to you. They obey you. They put your commands in front of them. That's being humbled. It doesn't have anything really to do on the part of a child with getting into the kingdom of heaven because they're humbled because all children basically are quite humble when they're really, really little. So what Jesus is saying, you see this humility on the part of a child toward the parents. They obey them, they love them, etc. You need to have that kind of humility towards God then you will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, when can that occur? That can occur before a child is born. What? Well, think about John the baptizer. When Mary appeared to Elizabeth, Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John the baptizer. Mary had just become pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when she walked and gave her greeting to Elizabeth as she walked into the house, John the baptizer leaped for joy. That's what Elizabeth says, his mother. And he did that because, well, the mother of my Lord has come to visit us. So there as the angel Gabriel had promised to his father in the chapter before, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from before his birth. So, John the baptizer was not only humble toward his parents, but he was also humble toward Jesus as he had been given that gift prior to even being born. Now, there were a number of times when the disciples were really bothered by people. There was this one woman who was asking to be healed, and they said to Jesus, go, go and heal her, so we'll get rid of her. She's making such a fuss. And here's another example where they were offended with the little children being around because they were disturbing the message of Jesus. Jesus would actually pick them up sometimes. Well, what does he say about that? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What does that mean? How can you receive a child in the name of Jesus? Well, the rest of the Bible tells us we baptize into his name. So when parents have a newborn child, they really receive that child in the way that God wants them. When they receive the child in the name of Jesus through baptism. And that's also talking about that you receive me. This is humility on the part of the parents. Parents come to the recognition, I cannot bring my child into the kingdom of God just by telling them you should be in the kingdom of God. See, that would be law. 
you need to bring a child into the kingdom of God by means of the gospel, which has to be a free gift from God, and that's baptism. So we get a newborn child, and we receive that child in the name of Jesus, and that's showing that we also receive Jesus. The next part is really important for our day. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and he'd be round in the depth of the sea. So you would say, well, how can that be that somebody can cause a child to sin? It's one of the primary reasons why adoption clinics will no longer, if they're Christian, uh, permit a child to be given to gay parents. Because you are putting that child in a situation where they will be taught that they have to believe in the sin of homosexuality. And they might even want to practice it if they have uh, a gay couple who's doing that. So I really agree with these adoption agencies to refuse to give children to individuals who are going to cause them to sin. And and that's really a, a very good translation that the ESV has. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Other translations, whoever offends one of these little ones. Well, how do you offend someone? You can offend them by causing them to sin. The best example I can think of is when Paul is talking about eating meat offered to idols. He said, there's no problem with that. Idols are non-existence. You can eat meat. But if you have a new member who's joined the congregation and he believes that when you eat meat offered to an idol, you actually become part of that idol, that you're giving reverence to the idol, then they're offended when they see you eat meat, and therefore they think, well, I can eat meat, and then when they eat it, they think they're sinning, and therefore they're going against their conscience. So this is the same way. Uh, For example, if um, you were writing your will, and you and your wife had little children, and you wanted to leave them to someone Uh, A lot of times you would leave them to godparents, but hopefully you've chosen godparents that are appropriate. Namely, they believe the same things you do in regard to Jesus Christ and Christianity. But let's say one of those godparents becomes a drug addict. Would you want to leave your children with him or her? Of course not. And so you would provide a different name who would be able to adopt your children according to your will. You would not leave them with a drug addict or an alcoholic or someone that you found out beats his spouse. So in that sense, you are protecting children. Therefore, someone who is of a gay nature and teaches children that that is according to the will of God, it would be better to have a great millstone fastened around the neck of that person than be drowned in the depth of the sea. 
because you are causing a little one to sin. Temptations to sin is the next section, verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Yes, we get temptations from three places. We do not get them from God, according to the book of James. We get them from our flesh, the world, and the devil. And maybe that's why this particular passage was chosen for St. Michael's Day as he defeats the devil and kicks him out of heaven. Verse 7 again. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. In other words, as we receive temptations and fall to them, woe is us. For it is necessary that temptations come. Now, why does God say that? These are the actual words of Jesus, that it's necessary that temptations come. Because if you read other parts of the Bible, temptations can lead to patience, to endurance, to confidence, and to hope. Yes, when we're tempted, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to overcome that temptation, then we have a more certain hope that heaven is our home. Not because of what we've done or not done, but because of what the Holy Spirit has worked through us. So it's necessary, because we're living in a fallen world, that temptations are coming. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Have you ever noticed that? It's woe, of course, to the devil, but who are his friends? His friends are all those individuals who live a life of immorality, whether it's killing little children in the womb, whether it's telling them that the gay lifestyle is okay, whether it's getting them to steal things from a store while their parents keep the salespeople busy. I mean, there's all kinds of things. And woe to those by whom the temptations come. Now, this is where you can apply this message to every one of us. There's no parent who is perfect. And so how do temptations come? Well, we've discovered that as people grow up, they kind of follow the attitude of their parents a lot of times. And so it's not at all unusual that a daughter who has an alcoholic father will end up getting an alcoholic husband because she's trying to save someone. There's there's tremendous articles here where temptations on the part of parents may lead to sin on the part of children as they watch their parents. So what does Jesus say? If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Then he says the same thing about the eye. If your eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, unless you understand law and gospel, you will really misunderstand this. 
Because a lot of people take the Bible literalistically. That means they read the words and they think that's the meaning. You need to read the Bible literally, which means within the context. I would point you back to similar words found in the Sermon on the Mount. And what is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about those who think they can save themselves by their works. Therefore, he says, boy, if you think you can save yourself by your works, then you can't even murder someone actively. You can't even think of it or say something that is murderous. And he goes through some of the commandments looking at, like adultery, stealing, etc., all which are commandments of idolatry. And it's in that context, he says, cut off your hand if you're stealing, cut off your eye. Now, see, what Jesus is suggesting, you want to be saved by your works? Then you've got to stop doing sin. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. But he's talking to those who want to be saved by their works. The other one way to be saved even though there isn't a true way to be saved by works, it was just possible because Adam and Eve would have been saved because of their wonderful works before the fall into sin. But once they sinned, then for all of us who have inherited that evil nature, it is impossible for the one way to be saved by works. But if you want to be saved by works, you have to stop thinking, stop saying things, cut off those parts of your body that are causing you to sin, or you can look to Jesus who has fulfilled all righteousness, who has followed all the commandments, and through faith in him, he is willing to transfer to you his righteousness. And you see, once you get his righteousness, then there's no need to cut off parts of your body. So, the point I would be making in a sermon, how do you apply the law, is to show that many a time, even parents, and especially those among our friends, woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And you just see a lot of things on the news where people have attempted to do crimes because of the encouragement of others who are their friends. They are not your friends. They're friends of Satan. But all of us can be friends of Satan because all of us somehow have caused others to fall into temptation by one way or another. And that's why the gospel is then applied that in Christ, even those of us who have applied temptation, even those of us who've looked down on children, can be forgiven because of the blood of Christ on the cross. So, here we would make it very clear that those living a gay lifestyle need to be brought under the judgment of God that that is totally a part of Satan's work. And therefore, if a person is allowed to speak to a child, 
they could cause that little one who believes in me to sin. And the second point we would make in this sermon is woe to the one to whom the temptation comes. We often think the temptation comes from the devil. That's true, but he works through us. Just as the gospel comes from Jesus Christ, but he works through us. That's why we go to church. That's why we listen to the word of God in church. So I I think this text would be a very good one to be preaching, particularly to help those who are wondering, what do we say with these people who are living lives of immorality? It sounds like we're judging them, and they don't like to be judged. Judge their sin and let the Holy Spirit then work in them to bring them to a knowledge of the gospel, which you also could say. On tomorrow's Long Gospel with Mark Smith, we're going to do the same thing with a hymn. We're going to take a look at a hymn. Does it have law and gospel? And remember, we're not talking about the content. We're talking about the application. That'll be on Rumination Tuesday, Law and Gospel. God bless. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962.